is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, Doncaster, can you hear me? Hello, I've missed you. It's good to hear your voice. Ah, oh, well, I've missed you. Well, you've had quite quite the time of it. Yeah, I know. Well, these floods have been absolutely terrible. And, and how are people doing? Well, I think there's, you know, it's going to be slow and painful and, you know, difficult process of recovery and... You know, lots of people have gone through a really traumatic experience, some of them for the second time, you know, whether it's for the first time or the second time, it's really awful. And, and, you know, my heart really goes out to so many people in my constituency. And as your listeners probably know, my constituency has essentially been the sort of the worst affected, I think. I love that they're now my listeners. They're your listeners. (laughs) You just said, as your your listeners will know. Oh, God, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's like you've disowned us. That's a form like vice versa, matey. Daily podcast, oh, Mister Daily Podcast. I'm not on your the new friend Owen Jones. I'm surprised you remember my name. Well, it's it's been lonely here. The the nights are long and dark without you. You called me thought... Ned in take one. <laughs> Ned Miller. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just you know needed to find somebody else to cling to in these troubled times. So that that's that's what's been going on here. Have you listened to it yet? No, I haven't. <laughs> it's, very, it's very good. It's very. I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to listen to a podcast about the election when it's all you eat, sleeping, and breathing every day. It's true. It's true. But uh, well, anyway, no. I'm glad you found a new friend. Thank you. Another Thank late you. in life friend. Yeah, I, I seem to. I mean, he's not so late in his life. <laughs> <laughs> he's my young friend. I think he probably is a borderline millennial, if not a, a full-on millennial. I think he might be. Well, what, what are you talking about this week then? This week's an interesting one. We're talking about online political ads. Right. Uh, in recent general elections, uh, we've seen parties shift their strategies towards online campaigning. And, and these ads were pretty much non-existent a decade ago. But they've grown to just under half of campaign advertising spending in the last election. In 2017, political parties spent £3 million on Facebook ads alone. Uh, now, here in the UK, we've had clear restrictions on traditional forms of advertising for decades, as you'll know. Uh, paid political ads, they're banned from TV or radio on this basis, that there should be a level playing field between parties. But online ads, they're just not subject to the same rules. Now, last month, you may have seen in the news that Twitter announced a ban on political ads on their platform but this really just demonstrates that we're currently reliant on social media companies to set their own rules so i guess this week they argue that electoral laws urgently need to be updated to keep up with the technology and i'm going to be talking to sam jeffers about the shift to online campaigning uh he he worked for you in 2015 ed right yeah, and he's now set up Who Targets Me, which is a group campaigning on transparency in online ads, uh, and uh, they've they built a tool to track these ads. And then I'll be talking to Kate Domit from the University of Sheffield, who's going to explain the problem with current campaign laws and what we need to do to fix them. And then to talk about this week in the election, uh, you'll you'll be pleased about this. She was a former reason to be cheerful of yours. Suze Kempner is coming Aww. back to give me her highlights of the week. Ah, Suze Kempner. I mean, I think there's a really good subject because I think what's happened is we've had a sort of revolution, as you said, in the way people are targeted, you know, in a country that had incredibly restrictive laws on what you were allowed to send to people in a, in a broadcast way. 
And it's sort of had this revolution, which is, seems totally, it's kind of essentially unregulated, isn't it? It is. And, Facebook and, uh, is sort of, is obviously absolutely massive in this election and it's completely unregulated. Well, that's what we'll be getting our teeth into this week. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful it, it is technologically related. You, I don't think you've ever canvassed, but it's basically done on pen and paper. But we now have something in the Labour Party called the Doorstep app, which allows you to do it on a you know mobile phone or you know iPad or whatever, and that is revolutionary. And what's more, my ten-year-old son Daniel was here this weekend, and he was sending people off to canvas on different doors using the doorstep app wow so so what he, he's marshalling people he was marshalling people yeah that's fantastic well it's good to know that you've uh you've roped in the children some child labor going on exactly there. no pun intended uh what what's your reason to be cheerful i went to circus school today what's that it's, it's where you go and learn circus skills did you go on your own no, I took Jean. I mean, I'll admit that I didn't really join in, but some of the parents, they were taking it very seriously. They were doing sort of uh, uh, aerial twirls and climbing up ropes and using the silks and stuff. But I, because I'm not f- particularly physically adept, uh, I, I didn't really attempt any of that myself. And in fact, there was a bit where they got every, and the kids were all aged between two and four. They, they got everybody to try and get the kids to climb up onto their shoulders and stand up. And I was unable to do it. And my son had to do it with the teacher. Oh, God. Instead. That is, I mean, honestly, this sounds like my nightmare. I'm, go- I'm glad you didn't invite me. I mean, if you had invited me, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to Sam Jeffers, who is co-founder of Who Targets Me, uh, who are a group of campaigners building a database of online political ads. Uh, Sam, hello. Hello. Can we start by talking about the history of online political ads in the UK? It seems to me like every election since 2010, people have been describing as the first truly digital election. Does that sound about right? Is that when we first saw this type of campaigning? Yeah, I mean, I think meaningfully, you're right. About 2010 is the first time people started talking about digital as being a core part of uh, a political campaign. I suppose even then, though, paid advertising particularly wasn't wasn't a massive part of it. Relatively small budget uh, were used back then. So I think it I think it wasn't until 2015 that we started to see the full arsenal of digital tools being used in the UK, and that was really the Tories uh, targeting. Uh, a load of Liberal Democrat held seats in the west of England with about a million quid's worth of Facebook ads was the first time we'd seen, you know, this sort of uh, nexus between data and messaging and and targeting kind of really spinning up into a meaningful electoral tool. And you were working in this field during that election? Uh, I was on the other side of that campaign. So I was working for an agency that was um, uh, trying actually to get the Labour Party uh, elected at that time. And you know, I think, you know, one of the sort of reasons behind who targets me is not that we lost, it's that we didn't know how we lost. I think we were quite naive to the amount uh, that the other side was spending on advertising. Our own budgets for that were very, very low. Uh, we felt like we could run a kind of successful grassroots campaign. And while that did happen, uh, ultimately, we didn't win the election. And so there's this question that begins to emerge is like, how is this all being done? What what don't we understand? What's missing uh, what data should be available in order to help people understand. And and this is what led you to create Who Targets Me. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is and how it works? Yeah, I mean, it still took a couple more years after that because obviously then a bunch of other elections start following where 
each time there's a kind of surprise result. So obviously the Brexit, the Brexit referendum and then the Trump victory, where each time the winner says, okay, Facebook ads were the thing that, w- that we were really magic at and put us over the line. So when it came to the 2017 election, we figured, well, how do we, how do we monitor what's going on in elections in a different way? So we built a piece of software, which is also called Who Targets Me, which is a, a browser extension you can install in your, in your Chrome or your Firefox browser. And basically what it does is it picks the ads out of your newsfeed and puts them into a database that then we can kind of play you back how you're being targeted during the campaign. So you get a breakdown of the different advertisers who've been targeting you. You can see like, oh, I've been seeing more ads from the Liberal Democrats. I wonder why that is. And I wonder, you know, what those messages said. You know, one of the one of the challenges around political advertising online is it's so ephemeral. It, it appears and then it disappears. And so we're trying to create something where as an individual, you get a bit more transparency and accountability into the ads that you're being targeted with. So I download Who Targets Me, I uh, I add it onto my browser, and then I carry on using social media as usual. And what you do is start collecting and collating the adverts I'm being shown. Can you tell me a little bit about what they are basing that targeting on? What is it that I am doing online? What is it? What is my behaviour that they are then tracking and basing their ads on? It can be as simple as where you live, right? I mean, obviously, in British politics, it matters a lot where you live. Many votes uh, are, are almost meaningless in British politics if you live in a very safe seat and, and nothing's going to change. But if you live in a marginal, you know, yes, that's a, that's a massive criteria as to why you'll be on someone's target list. Uh, the next thing is probably how likely they are to think you are to vote. So, you know, older people tend to vote more. Women tend to vote slightly more than men. Uh, women tend to be slightly more uh, in the persuadable category, for example, in the general in the in the 2019 general election kind of campaigns. And then beyond that, you can start to get into kind of more sophisticated stuff. So trying to target people on their their interests or their patterns of online behavior. So yeah, this enormously potentially very complicated picture. I suppose uh, you know allied to that though is the fact that most campaigns are chaotic and living you know in a very short time frame with a bunch of people throwing things together on the fly. And so. You know, it's very interesting to see sometimes things do look quite sophisticated. Other times they look uh, rather simplistic or, or way off the mark. Can you tell me a little bit about A-B testing? I read this thing about the Lib Dems earlier on, and they were running something like 16 versions of the same advert, each with a slightly different photo of Joe Swinson, and then constantly refining it, depending on which photo got the most clicks or likes or whatever it is. Uh, and, and And so they're going to end up with just one photo, which I guess is the perfect Lib Dem advert that the highest number of people would click on. So is it like live market research? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the way that most of these platforms work or or even email uh, when you receive emails from parties is that, you know, they will create multiple variations uh, of of an ad or a message. They'll send that out to, you know, a relatively small number of people, you know, 10, 15% of the the ultimate audience they're looking for. And then they will... um, you know, send the rest out to the best performing examples. I suppose that the thing that's potentially concerning about this is is the fact that we're all the guinea pigs in this. You know, we are we are the test subjects, but we don't really know that that's happening. We don't really consent to it. We're not really informed about it. Um, you know, we might be seeing a particular message, you know, a particular attack ad that is just being kind of tried out. You know, well, we'll see if that one sticks and we'll see if this one works. And, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But um, it doesn't feel like necessarily that campaigns are putting forward uh, the ideas that they believe to be best. They're just sort of fiddling around trying to find whatever works, which are which is two different things. And on the subject of attack ads, 
do you, do you find that online campaigns tend to be more negative than what we're used to in traditional British election campaigns? I think it's either as a result of the fact that these video, uh, the, these ads rather are very video centric, which has led everyone to look at particularly American campaigns where the attack ad is such a big part of, of the campaigning over there and think, OK, well, we can do some of that. Or it's actually the sort of nature of social media platforms in themselves where they seem to favor this kind of emotionally engaging, uh, you know, potentially inflammatory content. You know, you're trying to make stuff that people will share and that there are returns to doing that. So you've got this kind of combination of those two things that mean that, yeah, we think we see a lot more negativity in British campaigns now that there's this idea that you can, you know, attack people online without really being held accountable for it for the same way that you would be if you were to go and do the traditional sort of billboard with a big media launch and you know the newspapers writing about uh, your single ad that you're going to run for the whole campaign and now that you're running hundreds or thousands of these the sort of diffusion of accountability over time really changes the the, the kind of calculation that people make in terms of running attack material is this all really happening on facebook in other words is facebook the, the only game in town really i know twitter have announced this ban on political advertising but it, it, twitter accounts for a relatively small share of uh, political advertising budgets yeah i mean facebook in in 2017 was you know considerably sort of order of magnitude larger than google which was an order of magnitude larger than uh, twitter you see people experimenting with other things like snapchat uh, a little bit it's relatively small as a, as a kind of budget line but predominantly you know that with facebook you can you can find 40 million britons uh, on facebook or instagram you know, you can hit them with messages, uh, you know, at a time and place of your choosing. Um, and so I think the vast majority of, of effort and resource is going into that platform. And how much of what people see is paid for political advertising versus how much is content that uh, political activists or parties have created that people just share, as they say, organically? I think it's a really good question. And I mean, you know, we don't really know that much about people's overall information diet and environment, you know, whereas, you know, growing up in the 1980s, you know, we used to have a, a newspaper on the breakfast table each morning and listen to the same radio program, watch the same evening news program. And, and that was our kind of, you know, political news diet. Now, you know, the the, the sheer breadth of, of sources that you could be getting this information from, you know, some of those platforms being open, some of them being private, some of them being algorithmic, you know, text messages, all sorts of places where people can get stuff. You don't really know what the overall mix is like. I suppose, you know, the point about political advertising is that, you know, the advertiser chooses who to show it to, and therefore it becomes one part of the campaign they can control. If they're just producing content for you know, their kind of organic, uh, you know, newsfeed type stuff. They're rather kind of spraying and praying, you know, they're hoping it hits the right people uh, and, uh, you know, and, and meets some objective. Whereas with an ad, I can say, okay, I want people who might give us money to see this. Uh, let's put it in front of them and see what happens. But are people more likely to click on something their uncle has shared than a post from a political party that says promoted or sponsored or advertisement or whatever it is above it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the arguments, certainly around um, what happened in the campaign in 2017, which was, you know, the Conservatives still outspent Labour Party uh, three or four to one on Facebook in terms of advertising, but had no real organic content machine to go with it. So, you know, for every ad you would see, which is, you know, every, you know, five, six or seven or eight posts, you'll see an ad. Um, there might be five, six or seven or eight organic posts shared into your timeline from a Labour supporting uh, uncle. And so I think, you know, I'm, uh, 
perceiving, but no no sort of quantifiable data on it so far that you know, certainly the Conservatives have increased the number of posts they're making per hour during this election campaign. They sort of seem to be posting a lot more each day in order potentially to try and counteract that idea that uh, people's feeds are being flooded with pro-Labour stuff, uh, whereas all they have is paid communications to kind of counteract it. What's been the material change? Have we seen much evidence that digital campaigning changes the outcome of elections? Uh, we haven't, actually. Uh, you, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting problem. I think, you know, there's a lot of concern or thought that the advent of these new communications technologies has sort of rewired the way we do democracy. And lots of the traditional gatekeepers are obviously no longer in the way of the information that people receive. And so there's this assumption that, you know, because it doesn't have this kind of elite media filter on it, that, that people will interpret it and do different things and work in different ways. You know, my my view on this is still that that campaigning is subordinate to, you know, three or four other things that exist in politics, which are, you know, do you trust the leaders to carry out the things they're going to say? You know, what does their policy platform look like? Do people generally think that the country is headed in the right direction or not? You know, once you've kind of got all of those fundamentals out of the way, you get down to campaigns. and, and, And that means that really you're looking at campaigns where the margins are very tight in the first place. And so, it just so happens in the UK that our elections tend to be very tight at the moment and therefore campaigns seem to take on a, a great deal of meaning. But but I think in lots of other places, you, know, you have to question whether or not you could have a, you know, 20% kind of come from behind victory thanks to some really good social media ads. I, I'm not sure that, that, that we're, you know, we think it's that important in the in the grand scheme of how elections work these days. We have a vision of utopia on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. I don't need to go into detail right now. But if I if I was to appoint you some kind of head honcho when it comes to elections and digital campaigning, what is the first thing you would do on day one? So I have a very short term thing for, for a British general election, which is I'd really love to know, you know, what people are doing in individual seats. At the moment, you can see what's happening in, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland on some of the platforms. Some of the other platforms give you some targeting information. But you know, if you could just explain what was going on in an individual seat, I think that would bring a lot to the, you know, trust and accountability in the messages that people are putting out there, trust in the way that data is being used. Uh, and effectively, it would be like the right sized unit to try and explain how British elections work. And, and if you could do that in real time, I think that would be really healthy for our democracy. And, and just finally, on who targets me, if people want to get involved, what, what can they do? They can visit our website, which is uh, whotargets.me, and they can install the browser plugin. Uh, and they can just generally keep an eye out for interesting political ads they see over the coming weeks, um, You know, particularly ones from organizations they might not recognize or not have seen before, uh, because then that's the place where you know journalism and other forms of accountability can get involved and try and find out what's going on. Well, do as Sam says, download Who Targets Me. And Sam, thank you so much for talking to us. With us now is Kate Domit, who is Director of the Crick Centre at the University of Sheffield. Kate is also currently serving as Special Advisor to the House of Lords Select Committee on Democracy and Digital Technologies. Hello, Kate. Hello. Um, let's, let's talk about political advertising in this country generally and get an overview of how it's regulated. So can you 
talk us through the traditional media like TV and radio and press and leaflets and billboards and where those things stand with regards to regulation? Yeah, so political advertising in the offline world has got quite an established history of being regulated. So I think we kind of know that, um, you know, political parties can't, for example, run TV ads in the same way they can in the United States. So that's why we have party political broadcasts. And there's quite a strong regulatory history around um, curtailing access to advertising. And that's kind of overseen by a whole range of different regulatory bodies. So it's quite a kind of crowded landscape here. Um, we've got the Electoral Commission, the Information Commissioner's Office, um, Ofcom and the Advertising Standards Agency. And they all perform different types of oversight around um, political campaigning more broadly and then specifically drilling down to political advertising. So what what are the democratic principles underlying this ban on broadcast media? So the main one is actually enforced by the Electoral Commission, which is kind of this idea of financial parity, which is really um, runs through all of our electoral um, governance. And that is essentially that everyone should have equal access and you shouldn't be able to buy more access by having more money. But there are also a kind of set of implicit values that I think we don't talk about so much. So one of those is about having a, a common discourse and so everyone having access to be able to see the same ideas. Um, we've also got some implicit ideas around transparency and us being able to, to see what it is that different campaigners are doing. And then this idea of accountability of you know, once we know what's going on, once we know how much is being spent, actually being able to hold people to account so that if they do something that is outside of the standards that we've established, that we can call them to account and there'll be some penalty for them doing that. How is it different then for online advertising composed, uh, compared to traditional media? Okay, so online is completely unregulated. And I think this is why there's been such a lot of attention focused on political advertising online, um, because it's become quite a prominent part of political campaigning. Um, but essentially, the law just hasn't adapted. It's not been updated in order to take into uh, account the fact that online is now such a huge aspect of our lives. And what we're seeing is that, you know, those regulatory ages are agencies that I was talking about before, you know, all of them are kind of saying, well, we're not responsible for advertising online. And so it's, it's falling between the stools. And it means that we're not seeing oversight of the content of online political adverts and checking that they're held to, to high scrutiny. And um, we're also just not really seeing high levels of transparency around political advertising. So it's really difficult to actually know what's going on and to hold people to account. Here's something I've wondered about. Say you are an extremely rich person, an oligarch or whatever, and you really love a particular political party, just to pick one at random, let's say, uh, a Change UK. Is there anything to stop you not giving money to that party, but using your own money to take out an ad promoting them and their causes? Um, So it's you could essentially, you can see a role for these kind of third party organisations um, in elections. And yeah, they can place adverts and they can promote political candidates. There's nothing against that. Now, there are some regulations um, that are in place that give us some data about what's happening for that. So, for example, if at an election you wanted to spend money as a third party organisation promoting a candidate or cause and you spent over £10,000 and you have to register with the Electoral Commission. So there's some scrutiny. But 
one of the big loopholes around this is that it's possible for um, non-party actors to kind of spend under that threshold and not have to declare. So we don't really know what role organisations like that are playing in terms of placing political ads. And what if they spent the money not promoting a particular party but attacking a different one? Does that does that count the same way? So if it's this is kind of where we get into really tricky definitional issues, which okay. is uh, what a lot of the electoral commissioners are struggling with at the moment, which is, you know, how do you define what is political? And there's different ways to do that. You know, there's kind of like electoral political material. Um, and, you know, are you encouraging someone to vote? But then there's also kind of broader social political um, action. So what the electoral commission regulate is kind of electoral activity, you know, trying to get people to vote one way or the other. Whereas if you kind of just have an advert that's about a broader social political issue, it doesn't fall under the electoral commission regulatory rules. So if, for example, you just kind of had an advert, say, about climate change, it wouldn't count in the same way because it's not directly about the election. What sort of attention do you think... Um political ads on social media need what what type of regulation does it need how much can social media companies be trusted to look after this themselves i suspect the answer is not very much <laughs> well interestingly some of the social media companies have been taking some action on this so we have seen facebook create more transparency um, after a lot of pressure to do so and i think they are doing some good things so you know you can now click on a on an advert on your Facebook feed and it says, you know, why am I seeing this ad? And you can look at where the information for that ad come from, you know, who it is that's advertising to you. Facebook are doing some some things on this, but there are a whole lot of other companies out there who aren't Facebook and there isn't a consistent approach being taken by these companies. And I think this is why for me, we can't leave this to companies to respond to is because what we're ending up with at the moment is a really piecemeal approach where different companies are taking different strategies. So there's no consistency, but it's also really difficult for citizens to be able to navigate the information that they're being given by different platforms because we're getting some information in one format from Facebook. It's in a slightly different format from Google. It's different again from Twitter. And if all of this is intended to actually be making it easier for citizens to navigate elections and to understand what's going on and why they're seeing what they're seeing, there needs to be a really consistent approach. And what sort of laws would you like to see then? Would you like to see some kind of digital equivalent to the broadcasting laws around political advertising? Yeah, so I think there's two things that... The, to think about here. So one is that how can we make the existing um, law apply online? So there have been a few really common sense recommendations. So for example, on all offline um, electoral material, you have to have a digital, an, an imprint, sorry, a non-digital imprint. And that essentially says on any leaflet, it will say, you know, printed and promoted by the Labour Party. And that tells you who the source of that advertising is. But you don't have to have that online currently. So there's a really simple job just to be done to go, right, what applies offline should apply online. So we should have digital imprints on all online advertising. But I think that there is also another question to ask, which is that it's not enough just to apply the offline principles online and about creating parity. 
you know, online is substantially different. It lowers the barriers to entry. You no longer need a huge political party in order to be able to create and distribute advertising like you did when you needed to create leaflets. And I think we therefore need to think about what information we're giving citizens and voters about who is placing these adverts, who's paying for them, you know, who they're reaching and how they're being targeted. Now, you have highlighted 14 different reports from UK regulators, parliamentary uh, committees, etc., about regulating online campaigning. Can you talk me through the kind of changes that have been proposed and what the government's response has been to these so far? Yeah, so this is a bit of work that I did for the House of Lords Committee. Um because essentially there's an awful lot of noise going on in this area and we were kind of getting the impression that there was a lot of agreement about what needed to happen. So I read through all these reports and look at what have been recommended and there there is a lot of agreement. Um, there's some good news. So there's things like a lot of agreement on the need for digital imprints, as I mentioned earlier, calls for our regulators in this space to be given more power and even for a new regulator to be created. So there's all of these recommendations. There are an awful lot of them. But I think what's interesting is what's happening with government. Because if you then read the government responses to these recommendations, they tend to sound broadly positive. You know, there's a lot of agreement with the ideas that are raised. But what we're actually seeing is very limited tangible action in terms of implementing these policies. And and why do you think that is? So I think there is a real question around political will here. Um, You know, when you've got so many parliamentarians, regulators, think tanks calling for the same thing and the government going, yes, we think that's a good idea, but they don't do it. You've got to ask what's happening you know, why are ministers not actioning that? Why are they not getting that legislation developed? And I think there's a really big question here about, you know, what what's it going to take to actually get our politicians to legislate and make rule changes here, given that these are all techniques that they want to be using? And, you know, they see digital technology as really key to their own electoral success. So there's a real tension here between them wanting to use these tools and maximise them, but also, you know, potentially being afraid that by um, tightening up the rules, they might lose a competitive advantage. Given that we have this situation in this country where, as, as you said, TV and radio political advertising is banned, you just have these allocated slots for party political broadcasts, is, is there any case for a complete ban on online political adverts? I think this is something that we really do need to consider and it's something that other countries are starting to look at um, in terms of, well, should you just ban it online or should you ban kind of political videos online? It comes down to this tricky definition of, of, of like, how do you define this stuff? Um, because actually, you know, what is a political advert? Like, where do we draw, draw the boundary? Is it just something that's saying, you know, vote for Boris or vote for Jeremy Corbyn? Or is it Uh, something that's kind of saying, you know, our health service is really important, it needs to be protected. And I think you can ban adverts, but when you actually come to implement that in practice online, it's, it's quite tricky to enforce. I do think we need to start thinking about these issues. And the fact that this is something that does happen um, in the established media. This is why the existing regulators need to really uh, engage with the process of regulating online advertising. 
They're now a, a version of Utopia that we have on this podcast called the Jeffocracy. If I put you in charge, I, I say, Kate, I need you to sort this out, please. I want to have the best and most transparent uh, online digital uh, election campaigns in the world. What is what is the first thing you do on day one? <laughs> I'm going to give you a very academic answer. Because I think that a lot of the problems that we've got in this space are because we're being really reactive and we're chasing the latest scandal. So if I was in power, which you know may happen one day, I would write down a list of what I thought ideal political advertising and digital campaigning look like. You know, what are those key principles that we want to fight for in our democracy? You know, do we want common debate where we don't have people being targeted with different messages and not seeing the whole story? You know, is what are those ideas? And I think if we had those written down uh, on a kind of potentially a tablet. Um, like an Edstone. I, I was maybe alluding to the Edstone. <laughs> And I think we could have a much more proactive approach in terms of um, really shaping this space rather than just constantly chasing the latest scandal. Well, you've you've got my vote, and I'm sure you have Ed's too. I won't mention the you-know-what to him. Um, but, uh, Kate, thank you so much. Thanks ever so much. Great to speak to you. If you would like to spend some time perusing the background materials and research for this week's episode, it's up on our website, Cheerful Podcast. Dot com for you to have a look through. And for me, the takeaway is the same thing that we so often find if we do an episode which in some way covers tech companies. And it's that legislation just hasn't caught up with technology and the way we live our lives online and social media. And it really does need to be a priority. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As ever, we would love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts on this week's episode, if you've got ideas about how online political advertising could be done better, if you've seen anything that you thought was particularly terrifying or, or impressive, then do let us know. It's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Clive. Uh, on the subject of leaders debate last week's episode he says in australia we have a long history of leaders debates during elections but seem to have just about given up on them through absolute boredom this year's debate only got six hundred thousand viewers similar numbers achieved by two lame cooking shows which air on the same night maybe we need to see leaders baking maybe that get the bums on seats and this comes from rachel 
who says, I think it would be really useful to have at least part of an episode before the election explaining how the voting system works and or why we're not taught about how it works in schools. As part of that, you could add how to get the most out of the election, i.e. how to research parties or how to ask local candidates questions to find out what they can do for you. Also, Rachel continues, I used to have a giant African land snail called Ed, after Ed. He was great, but unfortunately didn't make it in life. I take it you mean he's he's no longer with us, Rachel, rather than he didn't become Prime Minister. Um, Apart from being super adorable, giant African land snails can become invasive species in some countries. Maybe you could consider doing a podcast on invasive species plants and or animals and their effects on biodiversity in the UK. All the best in the election for Ed. I've included a picture of Ed, the snail that is, for your viewing pleasure. And let me tell you, he is a magnificent beast. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to give us three things uh, that I don't know if necessarily made you cheerful, but uh, certainly that you've enjoyed as a spectator sport from this week's election. We welcome back the marvellous Suze Kempner. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Well, uh, before we get into the election stuff, there's a couple of things I want to address with okay. you. Uh, the first one is I just overheard you recommending yeah. to somebody that they have water instead of milk with porridge. Oh, yeah. I Are did. you some kind of savage? <laughs> this, like, I swear by this and have done for. Uh, my whole life, all, for for all my twenty years, um, and uh, I think milk is too much in porridge. I think it makes it too heavy. Uh, and this isn't for vegan reasons. No, this is for reasons no, of heaviness. I'm, right, half a cup of oats, mm. full cup of water. Do the oats first, or the oats will stick to the cup that you've just had water in, and you don't want to waste two cups. <laughs> and then brown sugar, minute and a half in the microwave. Perfect. Any longer and it turns a little bit into and gel. And they're not sort of water. I mean, I know they are watery because it's ah, water. But no, they don't get watery. It's you, like a good consistency. But no creaminess. Yeah, yeah. The okay. oats have their own creaminess. Okay. I'm, I remain unconvinced <laughs> about this, uh, this controversial opinion, but it's, it's something... No, that... I recommend. Okay. And then the other thing was, since you were on the podcast, mm. I feel that you have become one of the nation's most beloved uh, tweeters, twitterers. Oh, that's nice. Because you've started sharing these vignettes from your life, these threads. Yeah. And every time I see one, I think, oh, right, I'm going to make myself a <laughs> cup of tea. Here we go. Uh, t- t- so what, w- what was the one that st- what, what started this for you? What, um, what changed it? Basically, in 2007, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was a Christina Aguilera tribute act in Ayanapa, and it, I en- it ended up that I was working for uh, the Cypriot Mafia. <laughs> And so I just wrote five tweets on it and went, there we go. Because my whole Twitter shtick is just, this happened once, bye. And so I did that and it it really caught on. Of all the things I've ever posted on Twitter, for some reason, that was the most relatable. But what's happened now is people are clamouring for more of this stuff and you seem to have an inexhaustible supply (laughs) of these stories from your life on the peripheries of show business. Luckily, my career never took off, so my jobs have all got a hint of... (laughs) desperate poverty to them <laughs> well, an outlaw glamour I, I do I, recommend I do recommend people follow you I know <laughs> like Ed during some pretty 
difficult times in Parliament. Right. He's, he's certainly been feeling cheerful. Oh, good. You think he had it as his reason to be cheerful one week. I, in he fact. did. Someone yeah. told me, and um, my mum, uh, of all the things I've ever done, my mum said, that's the thing I'm most proud of, <laughs> <laughs> that you've cheered up Ed Miliband. How did that make you feel? <laughs> I, I really liked it. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. A mixed, mixed thing to hear from your mother in a certain way. <laughs> yeah. But. I actually, I was like, she's, that's fair enough. Looking back on my jobs, that's fair enough. <laughs> well, I've also seen on Twitter that you're, you're keenly following the election. Oh, yeah. You've uh, you've thought of a few things to, uh, to, to highlight from this week yeah. in the election. What's your first one? I'm really enjoying the fact that um, people are yelling at Boris Johnson as he goes out campaigning. I don't want to use the word brave, but like at least he's not in the background in a factory. And people are shouting things at him, but instead of abuse, they just say things that he's actually done. <laughs> and it looks like abuse because what he's done is so bad. <laughs> Hello, you've underfunded the NHS and also no one has a job around here. And he goes, oh God, oh God. <laughs> Do you, think he knew? Do you think he knew he'd done those things? I feel like he hoped no one had noticed. Right. <laughs> He's, he looks wrecked he as does. well. And that like, um, that does cheer me up. <laughs> but the fact that he's only been PM since the summer, he's only been campaigning for less than a fortnight, and I've never seen anyone look so beaten down by life. <laughs> he just looked quite shell-shocked by the general public. Yeah. You he get the impression like he's not met that many of them before. That, yeah. I mean, Trump has been president for nearly three years. He looks less wrecked than Boris Johnson, who's 20 years younger than him and has only been PM for four or five months. I do like the way that people would just yell at politicians. So (laughs) so my wife is American and not long after she moved here, I showed her the clip, you know, the Gillian Duffy, Gordon Brown. And she couldn't believe that a member of the public would speak to a prime minister like that. Because at least in the pre-Trump era, there was at least some kind of respect for the office of president where where people, you know, were were a little, even don't have respect. Yeah, 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 respectful or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Whereas over here, I think we have this sort of rich tradition of throwing eggs and milkshakes <laughs> and yelling. I, I have American friends who, um, I mean, they didn't they didn't really know who Ed Miliband was. Don't tell him. But I, I showed them the clip of when someone eggs him and he like in one move just goes, ha, not a fan, carries on answering the question, removes jacket and they were blown away yeah. with all of it. Yeah. You know, Hollywood came for him after that, but, you know, he is very devoted to the people of Doncaster North. and I'm glad, I'm glad. Hollywood's a terrible place, I I imagine. (laughs) All right, what else from uh, from this week's election campaign? His video. Boris has made a video, which was posted on YouTube. It was made by the Conservatives. This is meant to make him... No, I don't know what it's for, but basically it's one of those walk and talk Vogue... 99 questions style things but through a fairly depressing looking office yeah through yeah. through an office when i first saw it and it had gone up and it said boris's hilarious election ad i went okay i feel like they've made it deliberately terrible and called it hilarious for the clicks and shame oh, on us for sharing it this is this this technique you hear about them yeah. using comic sounds yeah. yeah yeah which i which that i fully believe is but then i watched the video and as it went on i went no, 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 this is how shit he is <laughs> at looking normal and campaigning. I think he made the cup of tea wrong on purpose. I See, I've, I've not analysed it cl- that closely. What does yeah. he do wrong with the cup of tea? Um, right. I should add, this is how I make tea, but I've been told it's wrong. <laughs> you put the bag in, then the milk, then the water. That's what he did. 
And that is what I do. It's wrong, Sue. And it, yeah, people do treat me a little bit like yeah. I'm a serial killer because <laughs> I knew that. But he does that, and I. It didn't make that. him that more relatable for you. No, no. It is a weird <laughs> video because the yeah. format of it, as you say, is a sort of a walk and talk thing. Yeah. But it's the the strange juxtaposition between the questions he's asked. At one yeah. minute, it's something about his Brexit policy. You know, they're, yeah. they're all, you know, yes. he's, they're, they're throwing him um, softballs. Yeah. But, but then all of a sudden they'll say something like, EastEnders or Coronation yeah. Street? Or what do you think of Marmite? Oh, yeah. And what's your favourite band? And he sort of lists some very popular bands and you can tell it's the first time he's ever thought about them. Uh, uh he clash, mentions the Clash, clash which the, I think he's just trolling Clash yeah. fans. Agree, yeah. By saying that. <laughs> he also walks past a guy in the corridor and says, hello, nice to see you. And it's clear that they've never seen each other before. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy's probably an extra who's been hired. And and what, who is the guy off camera asking the questions as well? Because there's yeah, that's some, what I want to know. Something quite, it was, it's, it's, it's got a touch of the speed dating to it. Yeah, yeah. He's... Um, Slightly game show host voice, so they've mm. they've hired someone with a voice like that. Mm. So, but Marmite like it, and like yeah, <laughs> I can imagine Boris being like, oh, "I'm kind of on the fence with Marmite." That's psychopath. <laughs> whatever the focus, whatever the focus group says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, talking of focus groups, um, because I basically get up in the morning about seven and then watch the news till I go to bed at about one a.m. Uh, <laughs> I caught Victoria Derbyshire yesterday, and it was a focus group they just did an hour-long focus group and they went these have never been televised before and as i watched it i went oh that's why (laughs) it was awful yeah they are there i think like a lot of the big firms that were using focus groups now don't because i think Mm. it's it's a little discredited as a way of doing things but i I think about this firstly it's not a cross-section of people. It's a cross-section like, of people who, who will go and sit in a room for £30 and a slice yeah. of pizza. Already that is a certain mm-hmm. type of person. And then if I was in a room and somebody was a real loudmouth mm. and I disagreed with them, I'd just say, oh, I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, they were all meant to be undecided voters. And one guy was basically like a, a Tory mouthpiece. He start, he, His first thing he said was, well, I'll be voting for Boris Johnson. I'm like, well, you're not undecided then, are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that um, you've never done a focus group. Right? <laughs> I, don't think that, I think they already know. <laughs> I think it's all out there. <laughs> Have you seen that episode of The Thick of It where, you know, they, they accidentally employ an actress for a focus group? And oh, it, yeah. this is ringing a bell, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. I should go back and watch the thick of it again and go oh that look, looks very you don't normal. need don't need to yeah, anymore yeah i feel yeah, like i'm already so, watching yeah. it <laughs> all right boris's video and what what is the last thing from this week's election Suze? so a former minister mr gork uh, is saying please guys please don't give boris johnson a majority wow. <laughs> we're now living on a planet where former tory politicians are saying oh not him not him <laughs> and think how much they must hate corbyn and they're still going oh not him not him it's a ama- and and I really laugh. <laughs> I roll around on the rug in my lounge laughing. Because <laughs> most of us work in jobs where we've undoubtedly got colleagues who dislike us and, oh, yeah. w- and would love to see our downfall. Yeah, love I'm a comedian. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah. in your industry. But you you don't usually get to hear about it like this. No, they're literally going. I'm not going to keep quiet until after the election. I'm going to quit my position now and then immediately tell all of the press that this man cannot be prime minister and i know that there's been um former labor politicians saying anyone but corbyn and you know but that's kind of more predictable because that's been going on for four years whereas this is crazy like no one in 2017 election was going do not vote for Theresa may guys do not 
No. I, and I, I, I'm guessing, reading between the lines, you're, you're not a natural Tory supporter. <laughs> but is, oh, come on. <laughs> is, is Gork some, somewhat of a hero to you now? Then? No, my, <laughs> no, no. This is like, I'm not one of those uh, Ken Clark stands either. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> no, but I, so I do admire it, though. I admire the fact that they've got enough principle to go, oh, this is what I really think. <laughs> But then I suppose they're in a position where they can because nothing bad's going to happen to them. They've already quit their job and they've probably got plenty of money. <laughs> Suze, what are you up to at the minute? People, people uh, follow just, you on Twitter? Is that yeah, the main, main... watching the news and tweeting about it mainly <laughs> until, until December 13th when I might have to take a break. Um, yeah, follow me on Twitter, S-O-O-Z-U-K, Suze UK. And are you feeling cheerful about the election? Oh, why not? Yeah. <laughs> sure, why not? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. I will give a quick plug to our spin-off podcast. If you're not listening to this, you really should. It's the Cheerful Election Daily with Owen Jones. Owen giving his take on things as he travels around the country during the election campaign. And it's a great daily thing that you can listen to on your commute or while you perform your ablutions or while you're baking or whatever it is that you're doing. But, um, I mean, it's, it's dizzying the amount of stuff that happens during election campaign and Owen will help you make sense of it. Do uh, do subscribe to it and rate and review it so that other people see it in the uh, in the podcast charts and then they can discover it too. Thanks to our guests, Sam Jeffers, Kate Domit and Suze Kempner. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And the artwork wasn't made by Emily Power or, this week, um, Grace Hetherington. This comes from Max Clayton, who says, Hi, Ed, Jeff and team. Can I please get a congratulations to Grace Hetherington for not designing the artwork this week? Uh, Max also adds, Ed, I like the make-your-own-sandwich shop idea. Perhaps you could call it Build-A-Bun. I will pass that on to him. Uh, it'll be uh, a welcome distraction, I'm sure, from the uh, the campaign trail. And if you would like a, a little mention as somebody who didn't design our artwork, then you can email us at the usual email address, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Our artwork was, in fact, designed by Henry Cole. He's been the Labour candidate for Doncaster North. I've been Jeff Lloyd, and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.